This edition of The Wellness Prescription is brought to you by Healthy Planet, your source to healthy living. Welcome to The Wellness Prescription on 105.9 The Region. I'm Dr. Claudia. Thank you all for joining me today. Who is a Chief Diversity Officer? Well, let's find out. Agapi Gisesi is joining me today. She is the Executive Director of the CEE Centre for Young Black Professionals. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Dr. Claudia. You know what? This is a very, very important topic, and I was actually astounded to learn that is there that there is still a lack of diversity and equity across corporate Canada. Yeah, I think that they, especially in Canada, I think that as we um, evolve and and as folks enter into the workforce, it becomes more difficult for us to see folks who are. Um, being promoted and put in positions of leadership, and especially for people of color, I think that it's, uh, you know, it's, people have the education, they have the skills, and I think it's time for us to really start assessing why we're not seeing them in places of leadership. I completely agree with you. And so why do you think that this lack still exists? Well, I think that traditionally we, you know, when we look at HR and recruitment and the types of places that people are looking Um, It's not that our communities don't have folks who have education or have those skills. I think that we're going to the same waiting pool, the same schools. And because we have um, folks who are in these positions who, you know, we just naturally end up uh, looking within our networks. And if your network doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, exemplify all that Canada has to offer, then you're, you're always going to be picking from the same pool of folks and not necessarily diversifying um, how you're looking, where you're looking, and how you're engaging uh, diverse communities. Uh, that's a really good point. And so it is important to have a diverse um, group of people working in your organization. And is this one of the reasons why there is the new role of a chief diversity officer? Yeah, I think that... Um, Diversity and inclusion, for some reason, uh, has a very misconception that, you know, it's only to hire people of color. It's only to include a particular group of folks. And that's not necessarily the case. The job of a a chief diversity um, officer is really to ensure that everyone within your organization is feeling like this is a place that they want to work. We spend most of our time at work. Um, probably more than we do with our own families. And so it's really important for us to be able to go into work and be able to show up as our entire selves and that our workplace is fostering that type of a culture. And the job of the diversity uh, officer is really to ensure that the culture as a whole is exemplifying that and making sure that no matter where you come from, what and that also includes, you know, a white male, uh, women, people from the LGBTQ community, and people of color, everyone, uh, people with disabilities, that everyone can be able to show up to their work and be able to fully participate and participate as themselves. So it's really their job is to make sure that the culture is rich and that it's including everyone. I like that statement. The culture is rich, rich with diversity. And you're right. I think a misconception is that people think that being diverse means that you're only including you know, people of a particular group, but it actually means you're including everybody and everyone who is a citizen in our country. And there are benefits to including a diver or to having a diverse group. And there are benefits to hiring a chief diversity officer. So let's talk a little bit about those benefits. 
Yeah, of course. It benefits everyone, really. I mean, the reason why, you know, people often talk about people of color, the people from um, the LGBT community or disabilities, et cetera, is because traditionally these folks have not been included. And so we, you know, indigenous folks, for instance, like when we look at the statistics, you know, black and indigenous folks are overrepresented in all the wrong places. And so we want to be able to change that. So in terms of priorities, it's important. And the reason why it's important is because if, if those communities thrive, we all thrive, right? We're able, they're able to bring a different perspective, um, a, a different skill sets to the workplace, lived experience, you know, tells all. And so it's also important for your chief diversity officer to have that lens, to be someone who is skilled in this. It's not beneficial for you to just hire from someone from within who has no experience in this. Um, it's actually very important that this person has uh, an expertise in this and is skilled in it to be able to bring what's happening on the ground into the workplace and ensure that they're getting ahead of whatever issues are happening in our society that would uh, possibly make somebody feel alienated when they're at work. And I think the important part when we think about diversity and inclusion is it's a win-win situation. And right now there's this misconception that it's a win-lose. And that's not in fact the case. People from diverse backgrounds bring different perspectives. There's so many studies that show that it actually affects your bottom line. Different uh, walks of life bring different ideas, innovation. Um, and a lot of the mistakes that some folks in corporate Canada have made in the past um, could possibly have been uh, avoided if they had a diverse uh you know, workforce surrounding the table making those decisions. I agree with you. I have a small company, so I'm not part of corporate Canada. But one of the things that we actually love about our business is that we are inclusive. And I learn so much from people of different cultures, different colors. I feel mm -hmm. like it actually makes my business much more of a better place to be. We've all learned, we learn so much from each other, even culturally. We're coming from different places. We're learning different things. We all have different areas of expertise. And I think that's a really important point. And it's also promoting this diversity in other businesses as well. So I feel like the more businesses that are going to do this, I, it'll encourage more companies to kind of do the same thing and follow along. So a chief diversity officer, would it only be a position that would be filled by a corporate company or can a small company like myself do it as well? I think a small company yourself could do it as well. Obviously, budget is clearly, you know, sometimes a point of concern, but I think it's important even when you are hiring folks um, to really think about what their background is and if they understand diversity and inclusion, especially if for smaller organizations, you know, while you're recruiting for your HR department, sometimes that's where it starts. Um, a lot of the culture shifting that needs to take place in larger organizations requires, you know, a lot more resources, budget. But even when you are a smaller organization, thinking about allocating a budget for training, for um, for initiatives around DNI, so that people can actually become educated and understand why it's so important to the organization, and much to what you just mentioned, you know, the learning from each other. We all have so much to offer, and it doesn't also require, you know for you to, to constantly be hiring, you know, large firms to come into your organization. It also could just be providing opportunities for people to come around and share who they are and their cultures and, and, and their life experiences. That's a really good point. And so what are some of the tips that you can offer business leaders as they assess their company's actions and the need for a CDO? 
I think if there is a, a budget that um, that organizations can afford to do this, I think that every organization, no matter you know how well they're doing um, on the DNI front, can use a diversity uh, officer. I think that it's really important for for organizations to really think about where do they want to see themselves going. A lot of um, the misstep that we've created is being very reactive. Oh, something has happened and people are feeling um, a particular way or, or not comfortable in the workplace, and then we're reacting to it. Where, as opposed to making sure that we're thinking about what type of organization do we actually want to be and what type of talent um, do we want to retain? Because it's also about, uh, you know, we have options. You know, employees have options and they can really work anywhere nowadays. You know, people have a choice to find a company that they can work from home. Uh, and I think the same is true about culture. If people are in an organization and they're talented, you want to keep them. And so really thinking about what type of organization do you want to foster? Do you want people to come to work and feel great? And what are the steps that we're going to need to take in order to do that? And asking your employees constantly, how well are we doing? What could we be doing differently and better? And that's really going to help build a framework to the road ahead. And so, you know, it is a very, it sounds like a very important role and it is a very important role and one that would benefit a company. So what advice can you offer an aspiring chief diversity officer? Yeah, I think that it's really important for, um, for them to not only think about uh, the populations that, you know, with people of color and indigenous folks, which are, I think are the focus now for very obvious reasons, but it's also understanding how are you also going to help people understand what diversity inclusion is so that they don't fall into the trap of this win-lose situation. So how are you going to engage all of your staff, people with disabilities, the LGBTQ community, you know, even the, the often what I see is, you know, um, employees, white employees might feel, oh, well, I'm, I'm not going to apply for jobs now because they're just giving it to everyone who doesn't look like me. And that, those are the things that you're going to need to curve when you're in these roles and understanding and getting people on board um, to understand what diversity and inclusion really means and that every single person within the organization is valued and, uh, and helping them understand the necessity of including everyone and that it's a win-win situation. So, you know, the reality is that probably some people, the workforce and the hiring of a chief diversity officer who's going to be implementing all these concepts and, and teaching the staff that diversity is very important, that's going to be their first experience with the importance of diversity and understanding that it's about inclusivity. That is going to help uh, people in their everyday lives. Is that kind of the feel and the, you know, is that... Is that something that you foresee as being helpful for other areas of how the world is dealing with diversity? Completely. Understanding what inclusion looks like and also helping to understand everyone else's experience when they're walking into a space and giving room for, for folks to be able to share that. Um, you know, talking to the staff as soon as you, if you do land this amazing job, you know, talking to the staff about their experience in the workplace and, and what that looks like and being able to share those stories so that people um, look at each other from a human-to-human -human perspective. 
And that's a really important point because we're all humans and we're having like human experiences. So it doesn't matter where you're from or what color you are. We all have to realize that we're working together towards a common goal. And that's just living and working and kind of surviving in this landscape. And um, so if, if you are working towards hiring a chief diversity officer, what criteria, like what credentials are you looking for in that person? Well, you want to make sure that they have um, an understanding of diversity and inclusion, whether that, you know, they have a degree in, um, you know, gender studies or, you know, that there is some type of background there, especially if they're going to be the chief diversity officer. Um, HR background is really helpful because um, at the end of the day, there there is a lot of um, formal training that needs to take place there, but also lived experience, understanding that, um that perhaps they themselves have experienced the the need for inclusion in the workplace and have taken initiative as an employee at one point, perhaps, um, to make sure that they see this differently and also have been trained um, to to facilitate some of this training. So you are, you know, encouraging and promoting the idea of hiring a CDO and, you know, at the corporate level. Um, How far would you say we have come in terms of inclusivity and understanding diversity? I think we've come a long way. I think, you know, knowledge is power. We don't know what we don't know. And I think over the last couple of years, people have really started to understand what they really don't know. And I think that, um, People who haven't been included have now started to speak up and share their truth. Um, and, and that has really been powerful, right? Folks who um, maybe didn't feel comfortable in the workplace are now sharing those stories with their colleagues and, and their leadership. And folks are saying, oh, I had no idea. And now we're all making uh, efforts to, to make those changes. And I think a uh, chief adversity officer a couple of years ago was very rare and, and far between. And I think as organizations are thinking about how they want to create inclusive environments, this is a, I think this is a perfect example and an indicator to folks that you're very serious and that you've put an investment in your organization to ensure that people feel included. I think that's great. And I really hope that we continue to forge ahead and make, um, you know, the workplace a very diverse, inclusive environment for everyone. Because at the end of the day, um, you know, it just makes for a successful economy and it creates jobs and it creates fairness across the board. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Agapi, thank you so much for joining me today. If listeners want to learn more about you uh, and about a chief diversity officer, how can they do that? Yeah, you can uh, check out ctoronto.org or agapigasessa.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. When we come back, what to do when she makes more. This is the Wellness Prescription on 105.9 The Region. Stay with us. Connect with us on Twitter at 105.9 The Region or call 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. This is 105.9 The Region. The Wellness Prescription with Dr. Claudia on 105.9 The Region. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to The Wellness Prescription. Finances can impact relationships in so many ways. My next guest is Asil Albaba. She is a financial therapist and the CEO of Conscious Economics. Thank you so much for joining me today. 
My pleasure. It's great to be here. So I think first off, I would really like to know, what is a financial therapist? So to give perspective on this new field, I came from the financial planning world, and that's the typical advisor planning role where you deal with the practical pieces of uh, people's money, investment strategies, retirement goals, etc. But when people come into your office to talk about money, they're really talking about everything in life, given how connected this topic is to our identity, our careers, our relationships, etc. So clients started calling me their therapist, and I realized I needed to go. I needed to take that seriously and go back to school to become a therapist, so I can uh, really merge this lens into the topic of money. And I realized after that there was a financial therapy association in the U.S. that was developed after the 2008 market crash. And that's because of the need for multidisciplinary approach to help people rewire how they think and feel and communicate with money in a way that fosters their overall financial health. I, I think that's amazing. And finances are such an important topic. I mean, when you're getting into any relationship, I mean, finances are a big deal. And they can negatively yeah, and they can negatively impact a relationship. So what are some of the strains that couples and families face due to finances? Well, given how taboo the topic of money is, it remains very unexplored. And naturally, we're coming into relationships while we don't even have a proper understanding of the money, the role money plays in our own lives, let alone now that we're sharing our lives with our other people, these problems are sometimes even magnified. Um, so there's a, there's a concept of financial infidelity, for example, and that's uh, whenever the, the, the concept of trust is really uh, severed in a relationship. And it could be very subtle. I know the word infidelity usually uh, has a very strong connotation to it, but it could be as subtle as buying something and, and telling your partner that this is, you've had this item for, for ages. So <laughs> there's so many different layers to it, obviously. But the the complexity around these topics is just because we we really avoid this topic. We don't know how to deal with it. Uh, we don't know all the different emotions and the layers of limiting beliefs that we've inherited from our childhood, from our upbringing, our culture, our religion, all these different pieces that contribute to the role and the meaning uh, we attribute to money that now surfaces even more in a relationship. And, and that's so true because some people value money and they think money, you know, is equivalent to affluence, whereas other people don't feel that and, you know, don't care about material things. So when you're bringing two people into a relationship with different financial values, that, that's where it can cause a little bit of the, you know, the strain in a marriage or in any relationship. Absolutely. I always say that money is a secondary problem to a primary cause. So it's just like the like it's the symptom, not the cause, basically. There's definitely much deeper layers to what's really happening. Uh, but it's also the way we behave with money is a, is a symbol of our value system. So what you're saying is absolutely true. We, we have to have a good understanding to what money is in our lives and how we behave with it as, a, as an indicator of that. So it's no secret that women are capable and, in fact, often do earn more than their partner. Why does yes. this cause issues in romantic relationships? 
Uh, well, it's definitely becoming a very common thing that when, as women are participating more in the workforce, um, there's many different reasons and there's no one right answer to it. Each couple is unique, obviously, but there's some of the stuff that we're seeing is uh, men tend to cheat more. They're actually four out of five men are more likely to cheat when their uh, partner out earns them. And uh, one of the reasons, for example, is because women who work more and earn more are also feeling that they have to take on more housework because they feel less feminine as a result of their higher uh, paycheck. Mm. And as a result, they're overly worked. They're starting to build resentment because not only are they putting on more, obviously more pay is an indicator of more stress, more hours, etc. But they're also having to come home and take on more responsibilities in the household. So the un- unfair division of labor in the household uh, is, is a major, major stress that leads to resentment and, and, a, and a segregation. And the other part of it is the meaning we attribute to money. So often money is, is um, linked to our self-worth and it's linked to our value society. Not, not to say this should be the case, but in a lot of times it is. But sometimes men are feeling emasculated uh, by 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 their partners, especially when they're being altered. And so, what do couples? What can they do to overcome this? Um, there's a really great conflict resolution framework that I teach my clients, and uh, we we talk about it, and it really puts things in perspective because it gives you guidelines on how you can start talking about money in a way that's not pointing fingers or using the blame language. Usually when, when there's tension around money, especially, for example, when women out there their men, there's a lack of togetherness language. So you start referring to my money, my life, et cetera, versus our money, our problems, you know, togetherness language. So it's important to seek the help of professionals, of medi- medita- mediators who can actually facilitate this conversation. But the to step to take a step back, actually, my invitation to anyone listening is to start making the decision and owning it to cultivate a healthy relationship with money within yourself first, so that when you're actually approaching a partnership and and the other person. You're dealing with it from a healthier place, knowing the the different layers that this topic represents for you. So my invitation is take ownership of this area in your life and and also commit to creating dialogue, to creating conversation and to digging into this topic deeper with the other partner. And so, you know, personally, I feel that I would be uncomfortable with talking about money in terms of my money, your money. Is that very common where couples have separate accounts, pay for separate things? Um, And does that work for most couples or is it better to have like joint accounts where you can be honest and true to how much you're really spending? I love this question so much. So okay. I don't think there's a one size fit all with these situations. The foundation that absolutely is important to to um, you know foster is transparency. If once transparency is established and trust is solidified, then whatever solution you you come up with between each other is is one that 
you know, obviously would uh, have a better chances of success. My recommendation and what I do in my personal life, I recently got married. Um, but what I do is I have my account. He has his account, but we also have our joint account. But we are aware of all the activity that's happening across the board. But I feel that it's important to have some sort of autonomy so that you're feeling empowered with making some decisions and not feeling that you always have to talk every single decision with the other person. So having some sort of autonomy is healthy, at least in my relationship. It doesn't have to be applied to every other person. Um, the foundation, like I said, is just having that message. And, and some of the stuff I saw in my office when I used to be a financial planner, there were people who would total less. That's part of financial fidelity that I referred to earlier. There were times where people open bank accounts that the other person doesn't know about or hide their bonus pay or... Um, you know, even that, they hide that, that the other person doesn't know about. And this is where it gets really, really tricky and really severs the, the longevity of the relationship, the more severe these, um, these things are. Right. And well, I feel that that is just, you know, that opens up a whole other can of issues, a whole other Pandora's box where that's kind of like living in a lie and that eventually takes its toll on you. And then like, who knows how long the other account is open for when the partner finds out. That can be a real, real, um, you know, wedge in a relationship. Absolutely. And it's one thing when you have a savings account the other person doesn't know about, and it's another when it's debt and you're borrowing money because that really has its own um, kind of forms, of course. So I have a question. So, you know, I have children now. So and children are expensive and they always mm -hmm. want and need things. And, you know, I've had this conversation with friends of mine where, you know, think children want things. And and sometimes you as parents, you don't always agree on how much to spend on certain things. Um, but I feel like you have to have an open conversation. But I know some couples don't do this. And it causes a problem because you're sending the wrong message to your children about what you as a couple value for them and what you're willing to go to limits for them. Absolutely. And actually part of the conflict resolution framework I was referring to earlier is to focus on the interest versus the position. The position just tells you what you want or what you think the best decision is. The interest is the underlying desire and the need um, that is, you know, um, it's the underlying desire and need that actually uh, stimulates that position. So when couples uh, usually fight, a lot of times they're fighting on the position they're taking on a certain topic. But what helps is when you dig deeper into why I'm, you know, why am I assertive towards the specific stance I'm taking? it's important to align your, your values so that you're coming constantly from that uh, place. And, and it's important to communicate these values to your kids and help them understand why we behave, why we take decisions on certain things, but how the, the challenge mainly is how can you communicate this to your kids when you don't even apply it or, or own it in your own life. And that's usually what happens. We're living in a very mindless consumption society where money just comes in and goes and there's not much awareness to how and why and this is what we're trying to do with financial therapy is like know what you're buying know why you're buying it and a lot of the times I, I ask my clients you know who are you buying this item for is it like for you or is it there's other external factors you're trying to um, 
you know, fulfilled here. So this is the important things to identify with, with kids is parents need to have this conversation amongst themselves first, align with the other person, communicate the like the have certain like red lines on certain items and and establish a guidelines to move forward with. But what's also another key thing to mention here is not only are we lacking financial literacy in our society, but we also lack emotional literacy. And this is why financial therapy is key because it helps you not only get more clarity on the behaviors you have with money, but understand all the different layers of the thoughts and beliefs and emotions that lead to these behaviors to begin with. So um, therapy tends to give that holistic piece uh, into perspective, and that's important for sustainable and long-term changes. I couldn't agree with you more, and I can't thank you enough for joining me today. If listeners want to learn more about you and maybe, you know, use your services, how can they do that? Absolutely. So uh, our website is ConsciousEconomics.ca, and we actually have eight modules uh, called, uh, called Mindfulness and Money that individuals can register for free. They're sponsored by our sponsors and you can actually go through different modules and, and learn different areas around money. So it's something you can see on our website at ConsciousEconomics.ca and feel free to also find me on my Instagram at Asiel Baba, uh, A-S-E-E-L-B-A-B-A, uh, straightforward and I'm happy to connect to anybody who's interested to learn more about this area and more so how they can develop a healthier relationship with their money. Thank you so much. And you can find me on Instagram at Claudia underscore Macchiella or my website, ClaudiaMacchiella.com. If you missed any part of our show, go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Dr. Claudia. Thank you for listening. The Wellness Prescription was brought to you by Healthy Planet. Order online at HealthyPlanetCanada.com or go online to find a location nearest you.